Welcome to another edition of the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. Along with Blue Ribbon's Chris Dorch, I'm Kevin Ingram, and we are thrilled to have you with us for another week. Chris, what's going on, man? Man, we're about to knock Blue Ribbon out of the park. Uh, we've got one more day of proofing, and then it's on to the printer, CJK in Cincinnati. They do a great job. And I think from there, it'll take about three weeks. And I hope by, by Halloween, people will have a book in their hands. And I think that's going to be almost a month before the season. So they'll have time to absorb a little bit of it anyway, 650,000 words. Uh, you've gotten your taste of the behind-the-scenes action this year. It's really been fun. <laughs> you, you haven't quit yet. No, so I haven't. <laughs> you haven't ran me off yet. Uh, it's really been fun to see how it all comes together, though, because it is an exhaustive process between you and, and the other writers and editors and just the whole checks and balances that, that go into it to make sure everything is accurate, make sure all the, the wording is correct, the graphics are right. It, it's really neat to watch it all come together. I, I think I'm not a well man because uh, I've put I've done about 22 of these. I must be nuts, <laughs> or or I must love ball. And and I seriously I think it's the latter. Yeah. Uh, you got to love ball if you're going to do something like this. I read every story. I'm the last line of defense. If there's a mistake in there, blame me. I missed it. But uh, we try really hard and and uh, we give as much space to some of the so-called mid-majors as uh, some publications might give to their whole league. And that's just the blue ribbon way. And I've talked to a lot of people here the last few days that have all 40 editions. This is our wow. 40th. And I'm I always um, actually dedicated the book to those people uh, this year. Uh, gosh, 40 years. That's, that's brand loyalty for you. That is exactly right. Uh, we've had fun, of course, as you mentioned, we've been working on, uh, you've been mostly uh, working on the book and, and getting everything ready to go. Also, the Blue Ribbon Report comes out every week. We'd love to have uh, more subscribers on the on board with us. Uh, if you enjoy our podcast, we know you will enjoy uh, what you get on, on a weekly basis with the Blue Ribbon Report. What's coming up this week? Well, we, we've got a story on, on the latest and only the second female assistant in Division One basketball. It's Corinne Tiny. Uh, Adams, uh, she likes to go by Tiny, uh, from Loyola, Maryland. She's got a cool story. Uh, she graduated from Oregon State in 2010, and then nine years later went back and got her master's in journalism. And uh, she's Tavares Hardy, who's the head coach there, uh, hired her because of that master's degree in journalism, and he thought that she could do a good job spreading their story. And it's a great story to tell. We're also going to release our uh, All-American team. Of course, we've already released our player of the year. That's Luca Garza. He's on that team, obviously. And uh, We wrote 4,000 words on Luca. I don't think we'll write as much on the rest of the team, but uh, <laughs> we're going to have – we actually have four All-America teams, and, and it's always uh, a cool process uh, that involves everybody on, on the team to, to try to sort out and pick what we think are the, are the top 20 players in the country. The Blue Ribbon Top 25 as well as is something uh, to, to check out and, and debate and enjoy. Uh, give us a, a preview of that. I think that it was it was a difficult time uh, for us to actually, usually by June or July, we've got a good idea of who we think is going to be and in what order it will be. 
But this year, it was so weird because everything's been pushed back, including the NBA draft and the draft decision day whereby kids had the opportunity to, to pull back. And that was August 3rd by the NCAA, August 17th by the NBA. And that threw us a curve. Uh, when Isaiah Joe left Arkansas, they would have been a ranked team with him, and uh, consequently they were not. They gave us time to, to take a peek at, at Alabama. And, and I know, uh, this show is going to be Bama centric, uh, tonight, but it gave us time to take a good hard look at, at Nate Oates' team. And I'll tell you what, I think they're going to be really, really good. And you mentioned Nate Oates. He is going to be our guest uh, joining us here in a few minutes. So, uh, looking forward to visiting with uh, him as he goes into his second year as head coach of the Crimson Tide and, you know, a, a roster that he's reconstructed a little bit to, to really fit his style of play. So it should be fun to, uh, to talk to Nate here coming up a couple minutes. Uh, Chris, what do you think we might see the schedule start, start to take shape and how much of that is dependent on what the power conferences do? Boy, that's a good question. Today, uh, I, I fielded a call from, from a power conference head coach who asked me what I knew about Furman. And while I was at it, they asked me about three or four other schools. <laughs> and the reason they did is they're trying to schedule some games. Uh, and they're going to, the, the way a lot of schools are doing it, at least power conferences, is they're going to play at a certain location. And while they're there, they're going to play other schools. Give you an example. Stanford, which currently is practicing on tennis courts, so I'm told, outdoors. Uh, they are going to play in the Maui Classic, which has been moved from Hawaii to Asheville, North Carolina. Right. And while they're in Asheville, uh, the plan is to play as many games against other teams as they can. So what teams are trying to do is find secure locations not travel as much, play as many games as possible, and try to build out a schedule. Now, uh, just under the cover of darkness in the wee hours of this morning, the NCAA released uh, uh, their final uh, verdict on the uh, schedule limitations. Some people wanted it to just be 27 games, period, but the NCAA decided to stick with you can play 25 regular season games, or uh, a couple more if you're in an MTE event. And I think some coaches just wanted to say, let's just say 27 games and, and be done with it because the MT, MTEs are going crazy because a lot of these, a lot of these tournaments like the ESPN events, let's say the Charleston Classic, some teams have bolted from there yeah. and they don't want to travel and they don't want to be a part of it and, and they want to do their own thing. So. One coach I, I talked to referred to this as, as the wild, wild west. Uh, I had one, an assistant coach from a high major text me not two minutes before we came on to record this podcast and saying it, it's really tough to, to tear up a schedule that you had done months ago and redo it from scratch. There are going to be some fun matchups that we've heard about. Uh, Baylor-Gonzaga on December 5th in Indy. Virginia and Florida will play November 27th up in Connecticut. And Mohegan Sun, that was reported by CBSSports.com this week. Chris, does it feel like familiar times, though, when you got John Calipari and Chris Mack going back and forth about scheduling the annual Kentucky-Louisville grudge match? I thought Chris Mack's video was hilarious. I must have watched that five or six times, especially when he got to the end and said, whatever is most convenient for Coach Cal, 
We'll do it. Hey, he, he slammed his hand on that desk. And I guess he was recording it with his phone. That thing shook up and looked like he was in an earthquake. Um, it's it's kind of cool. Uh, you know, Chris Mack, uh, he may look mild-mannered, but if if you recall the, the Cincinnati-Xavier uh, uh, games, and, and especially that one game. Yeah, there was nothing mild-mannered about some of those matchups. You know, when he was no, at no. Xavier and Mick Cronin uh, was at Cincinnati. He's a little chippy. Yes. And, and, you know, he's a competitor. And I think the deal was, obviously, they had a date uh, to play. And, uh, you're t- and The mutually agreed-upon date of December 12th? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> as, as Coach Mack pointed out in, in, in his Twitter video. And I think he's a little bummed because – this is the year where Kentucky owes a game at Louisville and there'll be nobody there. And then next year they go back and it's a full house in Kentucky. And, uh, and coach Cal, his side of things is simply that, Hey, nobody wanted this virus. Uh, we're going to have to deal. And so I'm glad to, to know that, that they did agree upon a date and I think it'll be a good game. I don't mind chippiness uh, in college basketball as long as it doesn't get into to unsportsmanlike conduct. Yeah. And I don't think this even uh, approached that. But it was funny. Yeah, I, I don't think this particular exchange between Calipari and Chris Mack uh, did. I mean, it, it has in years past. It, it got pretty nasty and ugly a few years ago. And I think, you know, that, that's that's been a heated rivalry for, for decades. But uh, a few years ago, it seemed like it, it got a little too far out of hand. But uh, that I thought that whole deal back and forth was pretty entertaining. Uh, what, what about uh, winter athletes potentially getting an, an additional season of eligibility? I know that's something that's been a, a front burner, burner issue here these last couple of days. You know what? I, if if the NCAA wanted to do that, they, not that they're going to ask me, but they would have my blessing. Um, it, it's as everybody knows, we're in, in uncharted waters here and we're not sure the resolution of, of the season. We're not sure the resolution of this virus. Uh, it's something that very few of us, and I used to say that no one, but I've found, I've since found out that there were people who were alive during, during the Spanish flu pandemic and, uh, they're still alive now. So I can't say that nobody's experienced this, but most of us haven't. And so anything that can, can bring back some, some sense of fairness to the athletes, uh, and to the programs, I, I think that, uh, well, I take that back. It's not totally underreported. ESPN had a piece about how, uh, mid majors that rely on guarantee games are, are going to suffer. And I talked to a coach at a, at a, at a prominent, mid-major school who said that his school stood to lose $300,000 in game guarantees. And that ain't a small chunk of change for schools. uh, Especially uh, for schools of that size. And and private schools as well. They're they're not state supported and uh, some of them. And, and, you know, they rely on, on these games, not only for uh, the money, but for the chance to, uh, maybe bag a quad one win and, and improve their stock. It, it's not beyond the realm that a league like the Southern Conference or the OVC, it happened two years ago, can get uh, two bids to the, to the tournament. And, and so, 
Yeah, I, I hate that uh, for a lot of reasons, but I, I hate to see uh, the mid-majors getting stiffed any more than, than they sometimes do. Uh, because let's face it, if, and you know this, uh, you've been behind the mic at one of the best mid-majors in the country for how many? 18 years. Yeah, this will be 18 years this season. Yeah. So, so you know, the, the, the struggle that Belmont has gone through to actually play a competitive schedule and a representative schedule. And, and it's difficult and it's been even made even more so now, but I do like what some of the coaches, uh, who contacted me today, uh, were saying uh, about the fact that like a Stanford, comes to Asheville, North Carolina, and, you know, uh, while they're there, they, they may play UNC Asheville, they may play Western Carolina, they play, may play Appalachian State, East Tennessee State. Those are all schools that are within a fairly easy drive of Asheville, Furman. And so there's opportunity there. We've just got to be creative. As, as in all aspects of, of this terrible pandemic, we've, we've got to think and, and we've, we've got to team up and and, and work solutions together. And I like what I hear about some of these schools wanting to kind of roost like in Orlando or yeah. at the Mohegan sun or uh, in, in Sioux falls uh, in that great arena there. And these are all places that are going to be secure. Uh, they're, they're going to partner with medical centers and they're going to do it. You know, it's not an NBA type bubble, but they're going to do it to the best of their ability. And, you know, let, let's let some, uh, high major teams camp out there and and play anybody that, that that wants to come in there and play them. Well, Chris, our guest has arrived, the uh, head coach of the Alabama Crimson Tide. Going into his second year, he is Nate Oates. Coach, how you doing? Doing great. How are you guys doing? Yeah, doing fine. We're, we're, we're doing thrilled well, to have you coach. with us. Uh, I, we, every time I uh, we talk uh, in the summer for, for my Blue Ribbon story, I always come away enlightened. And uh, – I don't know if a lot of people know your background, but you are like a math wizard. Can you tell me how you apply that uh, bit of expertise? And I know you love advanced analytics. How does that help you as a coach? Yeah, I think a math wizard would be a gross overstatement. My uh, <laughs> my, my younger brother's a math wizard. I was just uh, I was a little bit better than average uh, in, in a math class, so I was a math major, but no no, no wizard, but no, I was a math major. I taught the stats labs at the University of Wisconsin in their kinesiology department. I taught stats in high school. I taught high school math for 12 years. So got a little bit of a math background. I, You know, I think like most coaches, you try to get an edge here or there. I think the math comes a little more naturally for me. So, you know, we look at the analytics a little deeper. We try to get, you know, our shot selection. We, we look at pretty heavy with analytics. We trying to use it in all aspects of the game that we can. But I think that's probably the biggest one where it sticks out is what type of shots you're going to get, what's the points per possession on those type of shots, and how can you get the most efficient shots every time down. So, And then, you know, on the other end, on the defensive end, what's the least efficient shot for your opponent, and how can you try to force them into taking as many of the – you know, more of the least efficient shots that you can possibly do. I felt like offensively we did a little bit better job. And I think you can control your offense shot selection maybe a little bit better than your defensive shot selection, but we did a little bit better job offensively. This year we really got to improve our defense. 
Coach, I've spent what some folks might consider an an inordinate amount of time watching tape of Jordan Bruner passing today. (laughs) And, and man, you pegged it when you, when you were, you were telling me about that kid. The first thing I want to ask you about him is can, will he command a double team in your league? Because if he does, you're going to get open shots, a ton of them, because he's, he may be the best passing big man I've ever seen. No, he can really pass. I mean, like to the level of, you know, almost like point guard level vision. You know, he, he doesn't have point guard speed and quickness and breakdown ability off the dribble. But but when, also, like you said, when doubles come, when you're playing, you know, when you got to get the ball out into a two-on-one, a three-on-two, like he's getting it to the right spot almost every time. Now, we're having him play face in the basket a little bit more, and he can still pass face in the basket. When he does post up, I think he's really good. You know, we don't post up a ton, but we will post up. You know, I, and, and again, he's he's really shooting the ball well. So when you've got a pick-and-pop big that shoots it well, they switch it a lot. If they right. switch it a lot, now you got a chance to post up. Like, So will he demand a double in our league? He 100% will demand a double off a switch. You know, like if they switch and you throw it in, he's going to go score on every guard on a switch. And if they don't want to switch, I think he's going to get a lot of open threes and he's shooting the ball really well. And when his feet are set, he's shooting as well as almost anybody on our team right now. As I was watching that tape today, I mean, he had, he has all the passes. When, when you see a guy make a half court bounce pass, thread the needle for a layup and like unbelievable kind of no looks behind the back, uh, jump passes. He's got it all. I mean, you're not kidding. You can play through him. You can facilitate through him. Oh, he's, I mean, he's a six, shoot, he had a triple double at Yale. He's got the only one in Yale basketball history. He's 6'10. He was two assists away from another triple double. So, you know, he was almost had two triple doubles and nobody else in the history of Yale basketball has had one. So, shoot, when he got his triple double, he was the third player in Ivy League basketball history to get one. So he's in some pretty rare company. And I think the the passing all translates. It's not, you know, the, the Ivy League's not the SEC, but I think the, tr- the passing translates. I think the rebounding translates. So, you know, he he might not be nearly, a, you know, his, his difference in athletic ability may be a little bit bigger in the Ivy League, you know, than it is here. You know, he may be an average athlete in the SEC where he was probably, you know, much better than an average athlete in the uh, Ivy League. But I think everything else in this game translates to our level. Our guest is Nate Oates. He's the head coach of the Alabama Crimson Tide. You've revamped your roster a little bit to play, I guess, a little more to your style. How satisfied with you are are, are you with the way it's shaped up? You know, especially when it comes to shooting the three. Yeah, really good. You know, Keon Ellis shooting the ball really well in practice. You know, he was a junior college player. You know, we value the three. We led the country in three point attempts per game, so we wanted shooting. We've got two bigs. Six nine, six ten bigs that can shoot the three, and Alex Reese and uh, Jordan Bruner, and then we got a six eleven. You know, I, I kind of didn't include him in the bigs. He plays more of a perimeter guy, but you know, this kid Alex Chiku, he's a little intriguing. You know, he's he's fairly raw, but he's not raw in the sense that he's not skilled. He's raw in the sense he hasn't played a ton of organized basketball, but he's very skilled. He's just got to get a lot more reps. You know, five on five situation where he's gotten a ton of reps in a skill development session. So, you know, we've got guys that are bigs that can shoot the three. We've got 
we, you know, John Petty shot 44% from three. He's one of the best shooters in the country last year. You got him back. When you add in, you know, Keon Ellis, Bruner, you know, also you look at Jaden Shackelford. I mean, he can really shoot. He averaged almost 17 points a game as a freshman in SEC play. And then Javon Quinterly is making shots at a pretty high clip too. So you add in a lot of shooters, didn't really lose any shooting from last year outside of, you know, Beetle Bolden graduated and then Carr's going to the draft. But I think we've replaced those guys with more than capable and added some extra ones. So I don't anticipate the uh, three-point rate to go down at all. Yeah, I saw uh, you guys. I called the games for Belmont. We we saw a full-on uh, dose of you guys in the second half uh, up in Huntsville last year. Uh, I want to ask you about John Petty. He, he's such a talent. How can he take his game up another notch this season? Well, I think the other aspects of his game, you know, the and I thought he had as good a practice as he's had ever since I've been here today. And, and, and it wasn't shooting, you know, he didn't go crazy from three or anything. It was his leadership, his talk on D, his defense rotations, rebounding, like, like that type of it, ball handling. He's able to break people down off the dribble a little bit more. So it's all, you know, I don't know if he's going to improve on 44% from three. That's, I hope he does, but that's pretty good. So, you know, if he shoots it as well as he did last year, he's going to be one of the best shooters in the country. Now we got to add, you know, even better defense, better rebounding, better playmaking, all that type of stuff. And he's getting better at all that right now. I want to ask you about Herb Jones. What's the ceiling for him if all the hard work on his shooting pays off? Just how valuable can that guy be for you? I mean, he's 6'8", handles it, passes it. He's an athletic phenom on the defensive end. I mean, his he 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 plays a two on one better than anybody I've ever seen. I mean, he if he's on the backside and you had to rotate over and he's filling the cover to two on one, he's he's able to guard both guys. It's unreal what he's able to do with his length and athleticism, his ability to close, his ability to cover one through five. So if he can just make one out of three threes, you know, and he doesn't have to hit two or three a game, just make one a game, make one a game, keep people honest. Then they got to play you a little bit. Nah, he can get in the lane whenever he wants. So defense, rebounding, playmaking ability, passing. He's, he's a, a pro for a really long time. If we can just get him to make a fair amount of three and he's doing that right now in practice. So again, doing it in practice, doing it in games is a different deal. Like I, I get that. He's also got to stay healthy because we thought he was coming around last year, and, and if you, he barely played a healthy game last year. He hyperextended his elbow first game of the year, didn't get healthy till beginning of January, played really well for three or four games, and then broke his left wrist against LSU. And if you look at those games he was healthy in, he was leading the SEC in assist-to-turnover ratio. He was 3-1. to one. He had 21 assists, seven turnovers, leading the league that way, which makes sense. I mean, he passes the ball well. He, he's great in pick and roll. He can make plays. So – Hopefully he can stay healthy and we get more than three or four healthy games out of him. You know, if we can get an entire season where he's fairly healthy, he's going to show out a lot. Coach, the the other aspect of of your system, which I love, is your defense. And I guess I would best describe your defense as antagonistic. Uh, <laughs> can you kind of talk about that? Look, you must – Love the defense from when I was at Buffalo, I'm guessing, Chris. Cause <laughs> I didn't love you, you were nasty at Buffalo, uh, but the style was there last year. I don't think they played it quite the way you wanted. but Yeah, I, at Buffalo, we had two pit bulls 
you know, that would be into the ball that would cause major havoc. And then we had some really tough off-ball defenders as well, you know, between Dante Crothers, Devontae Jordan. So Kyra Lewis is super skilled on the offensive end. I mean, he's got, hopefully he's going to be a lottery pick. I mean, I think his game fits the way the NBA is going now. He, he was, you know, those two guys I had at Buffalo looked like middle linebackers sometimes. I mean, they were, you know, 6'2", 205 and, and nasty. Kyra was smooth. So, you know, did things well, did a little differently. I, you know, hopefully we can get, I, you know, I don't know that I'm going to find middle linebackers play point guard here and I'm not necessarily even wanting to find them that way, but we got, we do have to get a little bit better in the ball. We've got uh, part of our problem last year here was we didn't have enough length and athleticism all over. I mean, we were looking, we went through and watched all our games, right? I mean, there was tons of times we had Kyra, Shackelford, Beetle Bolden and playing Petty at the four. Well, that that's not ideal defensively in the SEC. As a matter of fact, it was a disaster. So we've got better length, more athleticism. Hopefully Petty can play more two and three, not four. Herb Jones is healthy. James Rojas is healthy. He's And Rojas, kind of like you said, he's one of the nasty guys that we had at Buffalo. Western New York kid, just tough, hard-nosed. I think, you know, Josh Primo, 6'6", strong, great defender. Keon Ellis is 6'5", athletic, can get his hands on. We want to put a bunch of ball pressure on without gambling, giving up a lot of two-on-ones, giving up layups and open shots. So as much pressure as we can put on the ball without getting beat, you know, we're still – playing in the pack a little bit, trying to keep the ball out of the lane. Again, like offensively, we want at the rims and kick out threes and free throws. So defensively, we want to keep the ball out of the lane, take them off the three-point line, force long twos. We gave up way too many at the rims and fouled too much last year. So we're trying to do a better job with all that. I think the defense is going to come around quite a bit this year. If it does, we're going to win a lot more games. Well, Coach, we'll let you go. We really appreciate the time. Looking forward to the season. It, it can't get here fast enough. And all the best to you guys as you head into the year. Thanks, fellas. Appreciate it. Thanks, Coach. Thanks. All right. Take care. Right. Well, Chris, that was a lot of fun uh, speaking with Nate Oates, the Alabama coach, uh, going into his second year. And, you know, we've talked about it before. They're, they're a lot of fun to watch. And, and he has revamped the roster a bit to, to fit more of what they like to do. And I'll be looking forward to seeing uh, what they have in store for us. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just looking at the Blue Ribbon story I wrote. They've got they, – they are so long. Petty's 6'5". Like you said, Ellis is 6'5", 6'6". Jones is 6'7". Bruner's 6'10". Uh, now they've got SEC-sized wings. Uh, they've got this kid, uh, Keon Ambrose Hilton, who's 6'8". The kid he was talking about, Chiku, 6'11". And he's really more of a forward. Josh Primo at 6'6". So – Everywhere you look, they've got long, athletic guys, and they really are when – and he is right. I meant – when I talked about his defense, I, I definitely was talking about his defense at Buffalo, the team that upset Arizona two years ago in the NCAA tournament. They are like a pack of wild dogs. They are relentless defensively. And uh, the combination of withering defense – and the fact that they're looking for the optimal, like he said, he's looking at points per possession. So they're looking at optimal possessions. And they want to score at the rim, get fouled at the rim, and make free throws when no time goes off the clock, or take wide open threes. And I'm not kidding you. I did spend an, 
<laughs> an unhealthy amount of time watching Jordan Bruner pass today. The dude is going to get them some shots, and they've got more makers. Last year they they had some takers. Uh, now they've <laughs> well, got lots of team more kids. makers to go along with Petty, who I think is could be the best shooting guard in the country. He he's outstanding, and I, I mentioned this when we had Nate on with us. Um, I, I saw them Belmont played them in, in Huntsville in an event uh, early last season, and I saw those guys, and I just thought they were entertaining. I like the way they played. You know, you first available shot, it's going up, and there, there's not a lot of room for the, the mid-range game. It's either at the rim or it's a three-pointer, and I, you, know, you, you see a lot more teams play that way these days with just the way the uh, the game Belmont goes. played that team, way and, under and, Coach Rick Bird. That, that's absolutely right. I mean, if you look at the percentages of, of three-pointers and, and layups, it, that's – that's pretty much it. I mean, there, there's not a whole lot of uh, mid-range game for for what the Bruins have done over the last few years. But uh, yeah, we look uh, look for Alabama to make some noise in the uh, Southeastern Conference and uh, in the Blue Ribbon SEC forecast. They're right there in the top three, along with uh, Tennessee and Kentucky. Chris, to uh, finish up, if there's two things we like besides basketball, it's baseball and rock and roll, and uh, and both <laughs> both lost a a legendary person here just in the last couple days. Uh, today saw the uh, passing of Eddie Van Halen, who, a- as a kid, man, I was all in on some Van Halen. That that was my band growing up. Uh, you know, as a teenager, I mean, they they were that was right there at their hottest. And uh, he he was you know just one of the greatest guitar players of, of all time, and, and really inventive and innovative in, in what he did. And then uh, a couple of days ago, the passing of Bob Gibson, the uh, the St. Louis Cardinals legend uh, of the '60s and '70s. He was. Not only one of the greatest pitchers, but one of the greatest competitors, one of the nastiest competitors. And I always wish that I could go back and watch Bob Gibson and Sandy Koufax pitch in the 60s. I had heard my dad talk about them. That, that's one era I would have liked to have seen. I mean, they basically lowered the mound because Bob Gibson, Gibson was so dominant back in those days. The year of the pitcher, 1968, when he had a 1.12 ERA. Uh, yeah, I was a little kid then, but I remember it. I remember when he threw his only no-hitter. Of course, all those World Series games, he, he was the ultimate competitor. And he was a guy that did not fraternize with the enemy. No. And he would chastise some of the younger players. If he saw them making nice with the other team, uh, Bob would get, uh, get on you. It's not commonly known that, that Gibby played for the Harlem Globetrotters uh, early uh, in his professional career. So he was quite the athlete, too. And we were talking about that story uh, before we came on where the last pitch he ever threw, he gave up a home run and I can't remember the batter, but years later in an old timers game, they faced one another. <laughs> give, give me through a pitch and hit him. You got to send a you message, know, the, man. The, the brush back. <laughs> like, man, the dude holds a grudge. <laughs> That's a, it reminds me of uh, something out of you know major league where the, the guy hit his son in a, in a father son game or whatever it was. But, yeah, yeah. And it's it's like the the great uh, movie slap shot. It was about hockey, but, but they yeah. said old time hockey coach, and and Gibson was old time baseball. It's like if if you looked at him crossways, he was gonna. Archer chin hairs. Yeah, even Hank Aaron said that he he was he sounded like he was afraid of him, and he's like, man, if if he hits it, just don't go to the mound. Whatever you do, that that's a big mistake. He was intimidating. Yeah. I, I mean, literally, like you said, they lowered the mound. It was too much of an advantage for guys like Kopax and Gibson and Drysdale. Uh, the year of the pitcher, I'll never forget that. 
uh, in 67 also. They actually won the World Series in 67 and 68. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. they lost to the Tigers in Game 7, uh, a game that haunts me still. Yeah, Tigers but, had some uh, pitching in that it, season too. He was a, a legend, a boyhood hero, along with Lou Brock. And, you know, the, the world is, is diminished with their passing. And Eddie Van Halen, I didn't even mention him. You know, anybody that loves rock and roll loves the guitar. And he was certainly a master. I made some sort of Facebook post where uh, I quoted from J- Jimi Hendrix's Voodoo Child, where in it he says, uh, if he doesn't see you in this life, he'll see you in the next and don't be late. And uh, I said, if there's any justice, he and Eddie are jamming as we speak. Well, Chris, uh, that'll do it for this edition of our podcast. Awesome as always, and uh, it's always fun. You you get us great guests. Coach Oates was awesome. We've had some really, really good ones, and uh, it's fun talking ball and talking with the coaches and, you know, getting into other things that we we enjoy. So uh, we'll catch you next time, man. Sounds good, buddy. Thanks. He's Chris Dorch. I'm Kevin Ingram. That's the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. We'll talk to you soon.